Oh, dude, I'm looking at it right now. Oh, dude, that's <laughs> disgusting. Oh, my God. They have, like, it's just raw meat and, like, an egg yolk. Yeah. What the fuck? One day before, What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Widow Podcast, the show about anything, everything, and probably food at some point. Today on the show, we have very special guest Gabe Rosales joining us all the way from California. Gabe, among many things, is a very talented musician. He's played on a number of albums across genres, worked with artists such as Jennifer Lopez, Christina Milian, Sheena Easton. The list goes on and on. So today we're going to hear Gabe's story and how that's led to what he's doing now, which is heavy involvement in criminal and juvenile justice reform and recovery advocacy. Quick disclaimer, there is some adult language on this podcast. We also discuss drugs and drug usage. So if you're listening with kids or if you are sensitive to that topic, just be aware before you get into it. And with that said, let's go right into the interview. Just tell us kind of how you got started in music and, and kind of that, that part of your, your life and your career. Okay. Um, cool. Uh, well, I started, my, my, my parents, uh, my dad's a Mexican immigrant from uh, Aguascalientes, and my parents met in Mexico City. And so um, they came over, they got married here. My mom always played guitar, and my dad kind of backed her up on, uh, you know, just rhythm guitar and stuff like that. So they kind of always had folklorical, you know, the, the Mexican folk music going. Like, she'd sing all these old Mexican folk songs. She'd sing to me, you know, James Taylor tunes and stuff like that when I was a kid. And she had this guitar. And so then, you know, I kind of messed around with it when I was a kid. And then I was one of the last key kids, too. You know, like, my parents weren't home. Everybody was working during the day. And we had a piano. So I'd come home and I'd mess around on piano. And I'd start um, creating these, like, just little stupid little things that i do, you know. And then I kept expanding every little piano riff, I guess you could say. Um, as, as time went on, as, like during the school year. So pretty soon I had like 20 minute songs, you know, that I was doing that I just memorized because I'd memorized a little piece, you know, every single day and play it a bunch of times. And then, um, and then when I finally, I, you know, I got way into the occult and stuff like that and metal. And actually my mom used to read me Edgar Allan Poe when I was about eight to nine years old, like for bedtime stories. <laughs> and it, uh, it was crazy because like the language is so rich, you know? Yeah. And um, the topics obviously like, Edgar Allan Poe topics are super dark. Yeah. You know, the, the Raven, the Telltale Heart, you know, I mean, um, you know, I remember like being 10 years old, my mom was like reading me this, I think it was the Telltale Heart and he's like, she's like, okay, she had like preface the, what she read to me first. She's like, just, you know, this is very graphic, you know, and then I'm like 10 years old, like, what's she going to say? And she's like, I buried the ax in her brain and I'm like, oh, you know, it was crazy. She was reading this to me like I was like 10 when I was going to sleep. <laughs> So it's just, I mean, um, and I, but the thing, reason why is because I asked to, to hear about it. I asked because I was into writing. I was like uh, really into just, uh, you know, just, I mean, it's pretty much creative self-expression in general, you know. Sure. Uh, and so I got into that and then I started writing lyrics and then I moved to Santa Cruz with my mom and I wanted to be the lead singer of a band. And, uh, you know, of course, got to be the lead singer. Like, I'm not going to play an instrument. I'm going to be the lead singer with the mic. Um, and then uh, the, there was a guitar player and there was a drummer. We didn't have a bass player. Drummer's just like, hey, can you take? You want to just take this bass home because he had one sitting around. Take this home, mess around with it, see if you like it, because um, we need a bass player in the band. So I took it home and it just fell in love with it. I mean, that's all I. I stopped doing pretty much everything. I used to skateboard a lot, so I stopped skateboarding because you know when you'd fall, I'd fall all the time, and so you know you, you land on your wrist and like when I'd go to play bass, it would hurt my wrists. So um, I'm like, okay, I got to pick between something. So I decided to go with bass, 
And uh, I just focused on that. And within about three or four months after picking it up, I started playing gigs like my with the band already. Um, you know, just playing at school. You know, talent shows and but it was death metal. You know, we were playing like Deicide, Cannibal Corpse, like these old obituary, like these old metal bands from Florida. And um, and I was the vocalist, so I was up there just going like, you know, like just brutal stuff. You know, Sepultura Slayer. Is that, these stuff. are at high school talent shows. You're playing death metal. Yeah, at junior yeah. high, man. It was so <laughs> funny, too, because the parents got... I mean, you know, the parents would be so bummed. They're just like, this is such horrible music. It was so heavy. It just And I had a pitch shifter on my voice, too, so it dropped my voice down a couple octaves. So it just sounded... It was crazy, dude. It was, I mean, I'm sure it sounded completely horrible, too. But, uh, yeah, and so from that point on, it was just like uh, rehearsing with the band. My mom ended up you know, giving me... She kicked me out of the house when I was 14 years old, so I had to come move back down because my parents got divorced when I was eight, so... My dad was living in Southern California. We were living in Northern California. She's like, you've got to leave. You can come back in a year if you want. Her and I were button heads and a bunch of stuff. I was a teenage boy, too, so it's like I felt like I kind of needed my dad in some ways. Um, and so I moved down to uh, to Laguna Beach in Orange County, and that's where my dad was living. And and then, you know, once I got to the high school, it was just a matter of playing with a bunch of different bands, like literally every night rehearsing for all of my high school, like with a different band. Monday night... And Tuesday night was one band. Wednesday night and Saturday night was another band. Thursday and Friday was another band. And then I'd have Sunday off. So um, it's crazy. It's just lots and lots and lots of practicing and playing. And um, the summer that I moved down to Laguna Beach, I didn't know anybody. So I um, I practiced. I'm not like exaggerating, like about 16 hours a day probably. Wow. For, for like months. Yeah. So I think that was my biggest growth period because I didn't do anything but play bass. Like I wake up about 8 o'clock in the morning. I start playing stop for lunch around one and then I'd play till probably about midnight or one o'clock again you know so yeah and then um and that was it man just uh lots of practice and then ended up getting a producer by the time I was in high school um uh, the end of high school and then um that was the beginning yeah wow wow yeah, that's yeah. Cool. and then so so then from from high school on Mm -hmm. Um, when did you kind of start playing it as, as a job? So, you know, taking this kind of this hobby, this thing you're super passionate about, and then now mm -hmm. all of a sudden it's, it's your job. Well, um, when the producer started producing our band, this guy, Paul Pesco, he kind of took me under his wing and, um, the bands fell apart. You know, so many bands come and go, it's hard to keep people together. It's just like any relationship, you know? And, and then if you get a little bit of fame, then like, um, you know, then egos get involved, be like, oh, well, we could do better than this guitar player, or we can do better than this drummer, or whatever, and then, and then pretty soon, you con different conglomeration of the band, and um, it's, it doesn't, it's not the same music at all anymore, and that's basically what happened with this band, with what the, the band that we had the producer for, we changed drummers, and it was completely different music, we were doing like, kind of Rage Against the Machine stuff, and then, by the time we got the new drummer, it was more kind of Tool, you know? So it was like eight minute songs and like, you know, for people that are trying to make radio friendly music, they're just like, we can't, what are we, the hell are we going to do with this? This is an eight minute opus. Nobody gives a shit. Like it's, we lost attention a long time ago. Um, and so then, uh, yeah, about a year out of high school, I ended up, you know, the producer kind of took me under his wing and I started playing with this band called Lynch Mob. Um, it's the guitar player of this band called Dawkin, um, George Lynch. And um, so... I was 19 at the time when I started playing with him. So it was like a year out of high school. And, um, you know, it was a big deal to me, you know, going out there and working on an album, recording it professionally, getting on a, re a real label, going on tour. My first tour, I turned 21 on the road. So this is like about a three-year period from the time I started. And then um, 
And then, you know, being a young player, um, you know, especially in the L.A. scene, they always want younger players, people that look younger or are younger, to go on tour with these pop stars, to play with these pop stars, because they can exploit the hell out of them, too. You know what I mean? Because guys that just, kids that just came out of, uh, uh, like, a music school, and not like pop music's hard to play, you know? And they'll be like, okay, we'll pay you 500 bucks a week to go on tour with this person. You just, just look good and play four notes the whole night. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like... And um, that's when I ended up playing with Jennifer Lopez for about three years. Wow. Yeah, and then just through word of mouth, I toured with her in Europe, and we did a SNL a couple times, and like Women's World Cup tournament, and a bunch of TV stuff. Most of it's like, a lot of it's like, they, they don't even, it's like lip sync gigs. Like you show up, you practice, you rehearse the tunes, but then they don't even plug you in anything. Um, it's Yeah, it's crazy, dude. Like especially those big like marinas. But SNL was obviously live and stuff like that. And, um, and then just through that, whole LA scene to word of mouth I kept getting more gigs as this young guy you know and um, who was like okay you know I mean I'm good enough to play pop you know and um, <laughs> and so then I just yeah kept touring with different artists um, Japan and Malaysia with Christina Milian uh, who else Sheena Easton um, just a bunch of just random people Nicole Scherzinger Pussycat Dolls like just random people like whatever I could find a gig you know what I mean and just um consistently keep playing that's the thing hustling you know but it was cool so by the time i was 19 1999 probably around that time and then um i kept it consistent for at least about five six years so you were yeah, cool. just traveling and touring for those five and six years yeah and there was local bands that i was playing with and you know i try to get on whatever i could you know what i mean and um and yeah and and uh i was teaching i started i picked up teaching around year 2000 Cause it was just an easy way to make cash. It's like, I already knew how to play. I could kind of teach people theory and stuff like that. So I started teaching around that time too. And, uh, yeah, it's cool. So, so what was that like? Um, you know, traveling and touring and, um, kind of being that young, uh, and, and being in that scene, what was that like for you? Um, it was really exciting and, uh, you know, it was, it was, I mean, it was awesome. Like I felt like I was living my dream, you know, like I got to go on tour and, um, eventually it started getting a little nerve wracking because it's like, you, you know, you have to stay relevant at all times. You know what I mean? You have to consistently outdo yourself. And I remember when I was playing, you know, playing with Jennifer Lopez and we were doing the European tour, we were on a private plane, you know, and I'm sitting next to the drummer and I'm 22, he's 45. And he's looking at me going like, suck it up now, enjoy it now because it's all downhill from here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this is as good as it's going to get. And I'm like, holy shit, you know, like, this is crazy. The, what am I going to do next? You know what I mean? Your brain immediately goes to that. And I think that's probably another reason why I started getting so heavily involved with drugs, you know, drinking and stuff. Um, I had a drinking problem all through high school. <clears throat> like, um, you know, it started off because my dad was an alcoholic, you know. And uh, so I grew up in an alcoholic household. Like, he'd pass out all the time. Like, I, throughout my entire childhood, he was, you know, passing out at different times for different holidays and him just being on the ground laid out would be a kind of normal thing. Um, and, uh, so when I moved back down with him, it was kind of like, fuck all. Like he let me do whatever I wanted to do. And so my freshman year in high school, I remember I would only drink on a Friday night cause I'd be too hungover on Saturday. I don't want to drink again, you know? And then that was it. That was freshman year in high school. By the time I was a junior in high school, I remember thinking about the week by Friday and being like, was there any day this week that I didn't drink? You know, I drank every single night of the week. I got drunk every night of the week. And I'm like, holy, and this is, I mean, I'm in high school. Um, 
And so then, you know, obviously once uh, the touring happened and you can completely throw responsibilities out the window because you play in a venue, you're basically own the venue for that night, you cause a bunch of chaos, you know, like be a complete drunken scene because it's part of the rock star atmosphere, you know, rock star life. And then you just fall into the bus and then the bus driver drives you to the next venue and then you do it all over again the next night. So, um, you know, I'd wake up in the morning on tour and I'd pour protein in this container, my protein shake, and I'd pour Jack Daniels in there and mix protein and Jack Daniels <laughs> together and drink that was like my breakfast. That um, sounds disgusting. It's it disgusting, dude. It was, seriously, it was. It was so gross. And um, yeah, you know, and then just causing a scene, just being ridiculous. And so by the time I came back off that tour, um, and you know, I tried to kind of still lead the same lifestyle, you know, get drunk and be a scene because it was just fun, you know, and I was being crazy. Oh, he's so crazy. Um and my friends eventually started telling me, they're just like, dude, uh, we have to see these people the next day. You know, mm. you can't just break things. You can't cause a scene. You can't destroy restaurants because you're going to wake up the next day and you're going to have to go back to that restaurant. You know, it's not like you're on tour where you can just wake up in a different city in a different state. Um, so, you know, as the gigs got bit, bigger and better, Jennifer Lopez and stuff like that, like the drugs also got harder. Like I just got, you know, you're around, I was on around cocaine more, um, I didn't ever was okay. Cocaine, cocaine didn't even appeal to me until um, I'd be so drunk that like I started doing that when I you know hitting lines when I was drunk and then you sober up immediately. I don't know if you've ever done any hard drugs or anything, but no, uh, good for you, man. You made it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, especially in the restaurant business too, because I know like I would used to buy drugs from cooks all the time. Yeah, like that was like the deal because people got to be up late, you know, and it's like waiters, everybody's up, they're handing out drinks, and it's like. I used to buy cocaine from the, the, the cooks around my city until I started kind of dealing it myself a little bit. Um, and so it just got progressively worse because you can keep the party going for days, you know, if you have enough drugs. And um, so that's kind of what happened. It started, you know, and then just trying out other things like thinking you're doing cocaine one night and then you end up doing speed instead, you know, burn your nose. And you're like, oh, what's that? But then you're awake for like a day and you're like, okay, it's fucking, I guess that's what I got to do now. So it's, I don't know, man. It was just, it was crazy. It, um, it definitely started coming to a head, you know. Health started deteriorating and shit, so. Yeah. Man, it was a lot of pressure. When when you came back from kind of these more international tours and, and traveling, is that, was that kind of when you decided like, hey, I need to, I need to sober up. Like I need, I can't, I can't keep living like this. Or, or when was kind of that, that moment? Well, yeah. You? I'd go through phases. Like that happened when I came back from, uh, the the Lynch Mob tour, and then I did a couple of shows with Jennifer Lopez, and I was just like off the deep end, especially doing Saturday Night Live, because like SNL is kind of known for partying, so they have an after party, and then they have an after after party where basically they own the club, the doors are closed, nobody can come in, and you just do drugs with the crew, you know, with the cast, um, you know, like hanging out with obviously like Tracy Morgan, just you know people doing ecstasy mushrooms, there's just people doing lines on the tables of this restaurant, you know, and. It's crazy. It was fun. It was a blast, you know, and it was, uh, I guess, a good story to tell. Um, but then when I came back, I remember one of my buddies that was like the most introverted dude that I knew. He went to a meditation school and he came back and he was like a different person. And um, and it changed. Like I was just like he was like little. I mean, it was crazy. Like he was more confident. Things weren't bothering him. He just seemed like he seemed completely like at ease and at peace. And so I'm like, shit, man, maybe I need to do something like that. So 2000, I went to my first Vipassana meditation retreat. Um, and it's basically Vipassana meditation, like the original teaching of Buddha. 
you go, you go up into the and uh, you have to do each for the, your first course. The first time you go, you got to go for ten days. You can't do anything less than ten days. Okay. Um, and you're in silence for ten days. Oh man. Um, yeah, it's a trip, and that's not even the hard part. The hard part is living with yourself in silence for ten days, like because um, and you meditate sixteen hours a day, and so what happens is is and so three times a day they make you do one hour sittings where you sit for an hour and you can't move. Like you can't change your positioning at all. Okay. Yeah. And so what the whole point of this is, is that um, you start to notice things like uh, your leg will cramp up and then you don't move. You wait and then that cramp will disappear. You'll get a tingling sensation on top of your head and it's like feels good. And you're like, oh, this is fantastic. I hope it stays. And then that goes away. And then um, you get an itch like on the back of your ear and you want to scratch it so bad, but you don't move. You just wait. And then it comes and goes. So what it starts teaching you is um, these sensations that crop up in your body throughout your life, you stop labeling them as good or bad. You know what I mean? So you stop going, this is a good sensation, this is a bad sensation. You just accept what it is, and you know that it's going to pass. You know it's not going to last forever. And so when that translates to your life, when you're outside of the meditation, like you know that everything's impermanent. So the laws of impermanence, like nothing stays, nothing's around, everything's changing at all times, and you're at peace with it. Um, so I think that's like, uh, that, that was a huge impactful moment in my life when I came back from that meditation school, but, um, it was kind of short lived because I started doing drugs again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, you know, you're talking about how you've kind of at different points in your life kind of had these moments where you've decided like, Hey, you know, I don't necessarily want to live like this, or maybe this isn't, you know, the best idea. I kind of want to do things mm. differently. Um, but I know you, so you've been sober now for how many years, bro? It's going to be 12 April 30th of this wow. year. 12 years, yeah. Congratulations, first of all. Thank you, bro. Thank um, you. But what was, so from this kind of come and go to mm-hmm. now, you know, 12 years, what was, mm-hmm. like, what was that, that turning point for you? Like, what made that, like, a concrete decision <laughs> that has lasted? Um, well, my health wasn't it, because when I went to the doctor, about the time I was 25 or 26, the doctor told me I had the liver of a 70-year-old man. Holy and, crap. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Like, my enzymes weren't working. My liver wasn't working right. Um, and I gained a lot of weight. Like, when I was 22, I was, like, probably 145 or something. I was pretty ripped, you know what I mean? Because I was still working out. Like, I always worked out. Like, I started playing bass and working out at the same time. In some ways, I feel like music and weightlifting saved my life, you know? Because I always knew I had to be at the gym at some point, you know? It's like... I could party for three or four days doing about whatever drugs and then but eventually I knew I'm like okay I have to make it to the gym at some point and that that kind of like anchored me you know um but um yeah so my health wasn't it but it's like one drunken night I almost killed two people I almost killed my girlfriend I almost killed another dude um and I got charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon domestic battery with a corporal injury um and it's kind of I mean it's just a long story band drama and stuff like that and but I realized then that, um, that like, you know, like I didn't care about myself enough to stop doing drugs. It wasn't the fact that I had gained so much weight. I was like, I told you I was 145 and I gained, I think I was up to like 205 pounds at one point. So I gained like 60 to 70 pounds, um, over the span of like, just keep drinking and doing drugs and eating tons of food late at night. And, and, um, and my blood pressure was through the roof. I was taking blood pressure medication, and I'm only 5'6", I'm super short. 
So 205 pounds, 209 pounds is like a lot you know, yeah. for me. Um, and so when I realized that like my drunken bullshit could kill people, you know, like I, I could, I could, I'm, I was capable of hurting people that I cared about, you know what I mean? Um, cause I had a lot of anger issues. I was super angry about a lot of things. I was pissed about my dad being an alcoholic. I was pissed about getting kicked out of the house when I, you know, by my mom when I was 14. Um, and then also just like, you know, the, the, I was pissed off about gigs that didn't work out right. The Jennifer Lopez gig, the musical director ended up getting kicked off. So they changed the whole band up. So I lost that gig because basically a musical director will pick whatever band members that he wants to bring in, you know? And so that was just kind of, you know, and then having to find different gigs. So there's so many different things I was angry about, but then I realized that, you know, my drunken chaos and stupor and dumb shit could, uh, could put me in a position where I'll lose my freedom forever. Cause I ended up going to jail. So, um, for, for doing that, because, uh, you know, like I, corporal injury means a bodily injury. Like, so I split somebody's head open and almost stabbed another dude. And it was just like, just madness. I was like off just in a drunken rage. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was, that was my realization, you know, and like going to jail. I got sober before I went to jail. Then I went to jail after that. I had to get a lawyer. I got my charges reduced so I didn't have to do years in prison I ended up just doing months in jail county jail but then I still had like what they call like a long tail okay uh, me- meaning like uh, I have I had like a bunch of classes I had to do anger management classes um, I had to do you know substance abuse classes because I had a DUI previously so I got one in 2004 that wasn't enough for me to stop drinking so three years after that in 2007 is when all this stuff happened and um, and so I had you know probation for five years couldn't own a firearm for 10 years. Actually, still to this day, I can't uh, federally. And then um, a bunch of stuff. So, And then, you know, jail was a wake-up call. <laughs> that's where you learn a lot of stuff in jail, man. So, yeah, that was it. It was like, uh, that's when I realized that I couldn't keep living the way I was. Just not only for not only for my, for because I don't want to kill people or hurt somebody else, but, just, I mean, obviously for myself, too. Like, I was unhealthy. I was unhappy. I... I you know, there's just so many different things. So coming from that and, and kind of having all the experiences that, that you've had, um, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about what what you're doing now. Well, um, jail was changed my life because uh, when you go to jail in any kind of correctional setting, um, you have to pick a gang, you know, when you go in. If you're going to be there for an extended amount of time, they'll put you with people. Um, what, and basically, it's just whatever your race is, you know what I mean? And so where I was in Orange County, um, there weren't a lot of blacks, but there were some, but there's two different gangs for Mexicans, you know. You had the Sureños, the southern chapter of the Mexican Mafia, actually three, Norteños, or the northern chapter, you know what I mean, the uh, Nuestra Familia, and then um, and then the Paisanos, which means, you know, countrymen, the guys that just basically just came over the border, and they barely speak any English. So you have like three different Mexican gangs, and then um, the Woods, which are the white boys, you know what I mean? called like Peck, Peck of Wood and then there's also like Aryan Brotherhood AB you know like like Nazi guys and then there's bikers too like you know and then um, and then blacks and then others <laughs> so they call them others like uh, which is like you know basically Asians or Arabic people or um, Persians or something like that and there was also China boys I mean so anyways you get separated into your groups and so I was running with the Southsiders the Sudanios Southern Chapter of the Mexican Mafia which doesn't really mean anything you just have to kind of pick a side and um even if you don't, you're not a gang member on the outs, you know what I mean? It, it, you just have to pick something when you go there because you have to figure out how to, where to put you. 
because there's this there's this hierarchy. You know, like if, if you have a problem with somebody else, you talk to your higher ups and then they solve the problem for you. And you don't ever have a problem. Like if you have a problem with another race, you talk to your higher ups, they talk to the higher up of that race and then they, they discipline the person. Um, so nobody ever, there's never any kind of racial clash. You don't ever try to discipline another race because um, then a ride will pop off and then everybody's fighting everybody. And that's part of the deal for being part of this organization or part of the, the group that you're put in. Um, you uh, you have protection, but at the same time, if something pops off, then you have to you have to pop off. You have to you know uh, riot or start fighting or stab people if you have to. You know what I mean? So um, that was an eye opening experience, you know. And I had a brown privilege there, you know, because the, the gang I was running with ran the facility, so I got first dibs on mattresses, first dibs on the phones, you know, all kinds of stuff. And um, but they came with the price, you know. The last couple weeks we were there, we got message from upstate prison that we had to start rioting with all blacks and um that so for us that meant since there was no black dudes in my housing facility we had to attack guys when we were walking to the chow hall to, to get breakfast in the morning and um if you didn't jump then they'd stab you so you had no other choice um luckily though the riots popped off before we went out so we got put on lockdown which means that you couldn't leave your cell or your cube or whatever you couldn't even leave your bed really and that was like the last pretty much two weeks I was in jail. <clears throat> and, um, and that whole racial disparity and the, the fighting and the, you know, the, um, the shot calling, you know, like one person says you have to do this. That means you have to do this. That kind of got to me. And, uh, and then I wanted to start kind of help out the community and, and make sure that kids, um, cause it's not, it's not fun. It's a shitty way to live. You know what I mean? And like, it's really sad that I mean, I was so lucky that I had as many opportunities and resources that I had, like, you know, having people pay my bills while I was locked up, you know what I mean? Like, take care of me. My mom and my, my girlfriend's mom and other people were pitching in to make sure that I had a life when I came back, you know? And a lot of people don't have that. So, and then at the same time, you know, uh, being in jail, you're with career criminals, you know, like, so if you don't have any opportunities when you get out, they teach you what you can do when you get out. So I learned about corporate crime, I learned about human trafficking, I learned about extortion, like what I could do to extort from, you know what I mean, like businesses, um, fraud, you know, breaking into bank uh, trash cans and getting serial numbers and creating fictitious accounts to transfer money. Um, and I'm a fucking bass player, you know what I mean? Like, and all of a sudden I'm learning all these things and I'm just like, wow, so if I didn't have any other options to play music, then th this would just create like, this is like schooling for criminals. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and uh, or for people that just don't have any other options, they don't even have to be criminals. You know what I mean? So and they can become criminals from going to jail and being institutionalized. So um, when I got out, I decided I wanted to record a solo album. Screw everybody else. I'm gonna record my own shit. <laughs> and so I did. I, I I got out in you know the same year, 2007, and um, spent a year, 2008, writing, recorded the album, released it in 2009, and then um, I went back to the meditation school in 2010. It kind of stuck this time because <laughs> I, I decided to keep meditating and stay off drugs. And, um, but it was a trip, though, because while I was at this meditation school this, that other time, um, I got the idea that, okay, I, I'm gonna, when I perform my solo music, I'm going to use whatever funds I can to try to raise money for uh, children's charities. And so um, I kind of started picking certain charities, uh, CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates, International Rescue Committee. I wanted to help refugees, people that were displaced. Um, 
Children of War Foundation, uh, doctors that, that get kids from war-torn countries that have been maimed from, like, bombs or uh, guns, shots, and, and, and operate on them so that they can, you know, be normal again. And then, um, and so I started, every show that I did, I, I would donate whatever the proceeds were to some children's charity. Um, and that became, and then I got involved with a hip-hop organization, the Zulu Nation, and then Guerrilla Republic, and all these other groups that were kind of hip-hop based, but community service based, you know what I mean? So, and then uh, by 2010, I decided to go back to school. So, you know, it was funny because it was my mom, my girlfriend, and my old drug dealer that told me to go back to school. And it was just, yeah, I told her, <laughs> yeah, right? They're just like, fucking do something with your life. Like, you sit around reading anyways, you might as well, you know, um, you might as well do something with all the time that you're spending reading. So I'm like, okay, I'll go back to school. And so 2010, I went back to school, got a degree in criminology, got an A degree in liberal studies. Um, I got into law school, but I withdrew from law school. I don't know if I told you about that. Uh, I don't think so, no. Yeah, I recently did, like this past winter. Um, because I started teaching at a prison last year, the end, uh, the very beginning of 2017 or no, 2018, Jesus. Um, and, uh, it's crazy. And, uh, so I spent a year teaching at a prison and then that changed my whole perspective on everything. I was like balancing law school and then this rehabilitative music program at a prison. And, um, and I, I realized that, you know, like I don't have to separate the two. I, you know what I mean? Like I can. And I had so many questions about what was going on at this prison in terms of like how programming is working. And in California, we have like it's kind of like an incubator for uh, police uh, uh, prison reform policies. We had a pro Prop 47 in 2014, Prop 57 in uh, 2016, realignment. And so only having two or three years of these new policies implemented, I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm on the ground floor, ground zero of seeing how these policies are actually playing out in prison. And, um, and so I'm like, well, I, I want to be able to research what I'm interested in. So I've, I'm applying to a PhD program now. So I withdrew from law school, now applying to a PhD program in criminology to study basically what I'm doing right now. Um, you know, rehabilitative songwriting, arts and corrections, um, integrated yards. There's all kinds of stuff that's like piqued my interest, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. awesome. That's super cool. Yeah, it's a trip, man. Keeps so, things interesting. <laughs> how how has it been um, since since you've been teaching um, teaching music? Like, what what is that experience like? like? How have the people responded to that uh, within the prison? Oh, um, it's cool. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, it's very emotional. It's because um, we have you know the stories are just crazy. Like they, it's seriously like um, it, it seems like it's fake, like a soap opera. Like one guy we had come in. This is an example of, of one student. He came in, he had spent 14 years of solitary confinement in Pelican Bay. Um, yeah, so in a cell, 23 hours a day, one hour he gets to come out and not seeing anybody else. Uh, Mexican gangbanger from East LA, about 46 years old. And uh, he's a high-ranking gang member and he came into our class. Great singer, always just down to contribute, very appreciative of us being there. And he shows up like two weeks after the class has started and he looks kind of sickly. And we're like, what's up, man? Are you okay? You know? And he's like, I got chemo. I'm like, I'm going through chemo right now. I have cancer, homie. And I'm like, oh man, like I can't imagine going through chemo in prison, um, like being weak and like having to be all vigilant and stuff, especially being a high ranking gang member. And then the next week we see him 
and he's with this 23 year old kid and we're like who's your homie like who's this guy and he's like this is my son and i say i just met him right now in the yard uh, no way yeah, it's crazy he hasn't seen his son in like 15 20 years because he's been in solitary confinement and his son ends up on the same yard as him because he joined the same gang and now they met each other on the yard wow uh yeah and but he told me he's like you can't say anything don't let anybody else know because if they know this is my son they'll kill him to get to me and i can't let anybody know i have cancer because they'll kill me in general so um that's just like one story that's one student you know what i mean and like there are so many that are like that you know uh yeah so they get to you know we get to sit there and um it's a rehabilitative songwriting class so we work on um each week we have a specific topic it's a 10-week program and we start with like childhood trauma and we kind of like build through that to taking responsibility for the crimes they, you know, committed, uh, amends, restoration, you know, anger to resentment, like who you're resent, resentful towards and why, you know, and then like taking responsibility and accountability for your actions. And uh, it gets really heavy, obviously, uh, because we're talking, we're bringing up some really, you know, old wounds for some guys. And there's this, you know, LWOPs, L-W-O-P. This stands for life without parole. So um, sometimes we're the only thing that these guys have that keeps them going, you know, because they're going to be there for the rest of their lives. So um, writing songs and, and jamming is like the only thing they have to look forward to. So it's like a big deal for some guys, you know. Um, and so, and it's a trip, you know. Luckily, I've had a chance because I, you know, my whole sober, sober path, I worked on getting um, a substance abuse counseling certification. I'm still working on like the state certification, but I got smart recovery certified, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. And I've done a bunch of classes already for the state certification. So I have some experience working well, like doing performing psychotherapy with, with certain groups as a musician. So, um, but sometimes it's like, I, I feel like, um, you know, as songwriters, like they don't have the uh, qualifications to open these wounds and then, and then uh, uh, try to heal them back up again. Like the, it's really important that we make sure these guys don't go out in the yard and stab somebody. You know? Yeah. It's crazy, but it's been a huge eye-opening experience, man. It's like, and that's—I mean, literally—it's changed my life. That's reason one of the reasons why I withdrew from law school. You know? Yeah, yeah, man. That's that's wild, um, and it's such a kind of unique combination of things that mm. I think. A lot of people don't, I, I don't know if maybe there just aren't a lot of programs like that or if it's just things that, that people aren't talking about, but, mm. um, you know, just having, um, you know, your, your music background and then kind of being interested in, in rehabilitation and yeah. seeing the things that you've seen in prison and then going to school for that. And now, mm. you know, working towards getting those certifications and, and kind of combining all of those things. Um, I think is really unique because it it can be um, a challenge for a lot of people to kind of take these two seemingly very different worlds and how mm-hmm. what can we make out of these two things together and yeah. and I think that you're you're doing a really uh, a really great job at doing that and and that's one of the things that um, that I think um, when I started following you just kind of seeing you starting those things I was like oh wow that's you know that's really interesting like. It's a, it's a bass player, but he's, you know, doing like he's in law school and he's, you know, doing prison rehabilitation. Like it was just something that was different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things about being like a former addict or whatever, you know, I, I, I like have a different weird, I have a weird way of 
thinking of recovery or addiction, you know, like I, I, since it's been 12 years, I don't still consider myself an addict. I think I have addictive tendencies and, um, but through my, the whole process, it's like, I, I've had to, um, occupy my time with something, you know, like they say, you know, idle hands. Um, and so I've been involved in as many things as possible. Sometimes it's almost too much, you know, it's like, I mean, I'm not trying to be like, you know, like I'm so freaking cool. But I mean, it's, it's been, it's, I feel like if I, when I take on too much stuff, I do a disservice to certain things that really need to be focused on, you know? Um, so I've been trying to spread myself less thin and just focus on, that's one of the reasons I withdrew from law school because it was, uh, you know, obviously law school is no joke. It's just like reading nonstop and, um, and it's just, it's a mission, man. It's and and, uh, I, I felt like I needed to focus a little bit more time too, like on what's going on at the prison, you know? Um, and to kind of develop programs that are happening there because as, as an activist and being involved and wanting to educate and counsel people, you know, I'm trying not to just be the guy that shows up and does a class. Like I want to try to help educate the guys and, and try to help show them that there's a possibility to stay sober when they get out, you know, because it's going to be a whole other world once they get out, you know, it's crazy. Um, it's a big world out there, but I feel like a lot of ways too. the fact that there are lots of drugs in prison and I have students that picked up meth habits in prison and then got sober in prison, which is it blows people's minds because they're just like, there's drugs in prison. It's like, yeah, it's just a microcosm of society. And, um, but they're even closer quarters. I mean, that's one of my whole positions and soapbox thing too, is the drug war, you know, it's like, it's just such bullshit, man. Like, I mean, the fact that I walk out in a yard at 8 PM at night and you know, a prison yard and see a drug deal go down next to me and there's armed guards everywhere. And there's towers with dudes with guns that are watching people 24 seven and these guys are still selling drugs to each other. And it's like, how do you really expect to keep that out of a free society? Like it's just totally irrational to me and a waste of money and ruins people's lives. You know what I mean? So, um, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's a trip, man. I've definitely seen a lot of crazy shit. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. That That's crazy, man. Um, so what advice would you give to, um, first, I guess someone who maybe is, um, maybe realizes, Hey, you know, I've, I've got, I've got a problem with, you know, alcohol drugs and, and mm. they want to get sober. Um, or someone who, um, you know, know someone like that and, and is, is trying to help them or, you know, what, what advice would you give to those two very different cases? Um, well, I, I try to counsel people as much as possible and, and, you know what I mean? Like, cause a lot of people reached out to me to, um, help them get sober. But I mean, it's one of those things where it's, you can't do anything. You can't do anything, you know, as a person mm -hmm. trying to help somebody get sober, you can point them in a direction, but they have to do it themselves, you know? And, um, and there's just so many things that are involved with addiction and every person is a, is a different case. You know, yeah. genetically they could be different. Um, they could have psychiatric issues that they haven't addressed yet. And that's the reason why they use and they don't know that yet. They need to be medicated on something else or they did too many drugs and now they created their own psychiatric issues. And so they, now they do need to take medication because from all the meth use or something, you know, mm. uh, and the dopamine that they've destroyed and the serotonin and like the way they're, uh, you know, the way the chemicals are working in their brains, they've actually altered it. So now they have to take medication. So it's really hard to, I, I wouldn't say have a mental, I would tell somebody that don't have the mentality that you're going to fix anybody that you're going to, or you're going to save somebody you can just try to point them in the right direction 
and lead by example um, and then be there for them when they need you. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, um, and in terms of like speaking actually to an addict, it's like everybody's lows are different. You know, um, for me, my low is going to jail and almost killing people, you know, and like for other people, it's just like that isn't enough. They'll keep going and they'll keep using. Um, and basically, I just hope people's lows aren't, you know, underground. I hope their low is low is not underground. I hope they figure out because it's like um, it's people are hurting, you know, and it's like it's it's a horrible thing to see. It's just destroying yourself because you're in so much pain. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not, I mean, of course, that's not always the case either. It's like some kids, some people had a fantastic home life. They just are bored. So they pick up a drug and then they keep doing it and that destroys the entire family. You know, it's just like, um, it's just so hard to, you know, pinpoint, you know, the root and the cause because so many, there's so many different examples. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, I would say that there is help for everybody out there. You just have to keep looking for it, whether it's AA based, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy, smart recovery, whether it's cold turkey, because like the fact that I didn't really do any AA meetings, I've had other addicts tell me, well, then you weren't re a real addict. And, uh, and that kind of shit is just crazy because it's just like, well, you know, it's, it's this whole uh, uh, judgmental club that, that people get into, you know, like, well, let me tell you my horror stories. You actually haven't been anywhere, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's yeah. like, if, you, if it's enough for you, then it's enough. And, you got, and there's always help. And there's always people out there that can help you out, but you have to put the work in, you know, that's pretty much, that's pretty much the spiel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I think that's, I think that's, that's, um, that's helpful. Even just saying that, you know, every case is different and every person is different and, mm -hmm. and what a person is facing, um, is not going to be the same as, you know, what someone else does. And, and there's not, yes. um, even though there's, and, maybe degrees of severity like you were saying like people's people's lows are different um mm -hmm. and yes. you don't have to you know you don't have to hit that super super rock bottom of mm -hmm. oh man i already destroyed everything to to seek help totally and like i mean that's a big one it's like you know because people relapse all the time and yeah relapse can be part of the journey but it's also like you don't have to get to the point where you're like okay let's try it again and I think I was lucky enough to have these different outlets. I was able to jump into music. I was able to, you know, work out consistently. I had things that I was doing that could keep my mind off of wanting to get drunk, you know. And then, um, and even that was scary as hell, man. Like playing a gig the first time um, after like 14 years of consistent drinking, playing a gig sober, that fucking was terrifying, dude. Like, <laughs> and it was like in front of like three people. Like nobody gave a shit. Like I played on SNL like, millions of people across the United States and and then here I am in front of three people at a club like just sweating um because I hadn't I hadn't gotten used to my skin I hadn't gotten used to being myself yet I you know I wasn't ready to um to uh, uh look at myself under the microscope yet you know it's crazy cool dude well um switching gears just a little bit because um, mm -hmm. we're we're coming up here to to the end of the podcast and because a lot of people who listen to this are, are into food. I figured we'd just kind of end talking about mm. food. So when you eat, what do you like to eat? I know you like tacos, but what's your, what's your go-to? Yeah. What's your favorite? Well, actually Dude. I hate the word favorite. You don't have to have a favorite. What do you like? Man, I seriously, bro. Like I freaking love all food, dude. Like I can't, I seriously, they're oh, okay. 
w- one thing I had that I couldn't finish because I usually finish everything and I love food is a, a Monte Cristo sandwich. That made me feel like a piece of shit. But why? I, it was good for a little bit. Well, it's just because it was so rich, you know, like deep fried egg and jam and ham and bread and like it was so good. But I mean, I think maybe because, I, you know, knowing that I'd eventually go to the gym and that like I'd be that stuff would be coming out of my pores later. Uh, I, I was kind of like I was over it. But um, that's pretty much the only thing I think I've never been able to finish. I mean, it, it, even like in like almost my ex ex-girlfriend, I remember she uh, I bought food for us one time and <laughs> this is how serious I am about food um I bought food for us and you know she had ordered her food I ordered my food and I put you know we're sitting down to eat and she starts she just has her fork and she starts reaching across and, and pulling food out of my plate because she wanted to try something and I was so hungry dude and you know I bought her her food so it was sitting in front of her but she just wanted to try something that was on my plate so she starts picking across and I looked her right in the face. I go, if you do that one more time, I'm going to stab your hand. And, uh, and she was like, seriously, like just drunk, like totally tore back. She's like, are you, are you serious? Are you, are you kidding? And I'm like, no, dude, I bought you your food. This is my food. I'm going to eat my food. Like I just, I, I lost my mind, man. Um, and this is obviously when I was still drinking and I was like, I hadn't dealt with like anger issues and stuff. Um, but I mean, I was, that's how serious I was. Like I was like this is my food. And, and, you know, my girlfriend now is just, she knows that I probably won't share anything with her. I just don't share food. It's like, I, you order what you want, I order what I want, and I'm going to finish all of it, no matter what. Um, so you name it, dude. Sushi, uh, Thai food. I love Indian food. Um, like, sog, dude. Sog. Uh, and then what are those, uh, the dumplings again? The mimosa, uh, samosas. The samosas with, uh, with a mint chutney, dude. Oh, it's ridiculous. Uh, what else we got? Yeah, I love Thai food too, even the stinky stuff. Um, you know what? One thing that maybe Vietnamese food I'm not like super into, but I might have not had it too much. I do love ramen too, so I've been going to ramen, getting ramen recently. It's a lot of sodium though. It kind of reminds me of jail because that's all you ever have is soups. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I mean, I'm not like super hyped on it, but I'll still eat it. That's great. Um, and then uh, I'm trying to think of something specific that, you know, but I love carnitas and carne asada and then. Um, Ceviche is fantastic. I'll tear that up. Uh, what else is there? Yeah, man, you're lucky because you're you're right there on the beach, so you have mm-hmm. good seafood options. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's great. Everything's pretty much fresh, you know. And uh, I'm trying to think of anything else that's like that just jumps out at me. That I mean, I love sandwiches, dude. I, I can't. I don't discriminate. But you know, it's kind of funny. I don't ever cheat on my food. I I just feel guilty if I have a plate in front of me and I'm eating. And I catch myself thinking about other food. I like. I feel guilty. <laughs> like if I'm eating sushi, and I'm like, oh, pizza. And I'm like, oh, dude, that's terrible. Don't ever do that again. You know. I Man, I I do not have that philosophy at all about <laughs> food. What, <laughs> when I'm eating, I'm usually thinking about like, what am I gonna have next? And like, what else do I want? <laughs> that's so funny. I'm like out of the gym too. Like my girlfriend hates it when I'm like that because I'm like, we'll be on a treadmill. And I'm like, so what are we gonna eat? She's like, I don't even feel like eating right now. I don't feel like I'm gonna throw up right now. Like, what do you? And I'm like, no, but like we're, and I'll pick gyms specifically based on what they what, what foods around that place, you know what I mean? Yes. See, I knew there was a reason we were friends. Yeah, man. I mean, dude, the food you post, I can't wait to try some of the stuff you cook up, man. And like you, and I love the fact that you travel all over the place and you try different stuff and you, you meet new people and you like, and you're edu- the way you educate people on, you know, oh, I won't go down to Mexico and eat some from, stuff from a taco car. That's disgusting. That's dirty. 
and you're just like, nah, actually, it's probably the safest food you can eat, you know? Um, that's, I will commend you for that. It's fucking beautiful. <laughs> Thank, thanks, man. I, you know, when I, when I first started traveling, I knew that there was going to be a lot of things that were going to be weird to me, that were not going to taste good, that I was not going to like trying, but I just went into it with like, I can't say no. I'm just going to say yes to everything that is served mm. to me and I'm just going to, you know, deal with it. If you don't like it, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Um, and so I'll try, I'll try anything once. Like there really isn't, I, I, I can't think of something that I've, are are you into bugs? Um, I haven't had the opportunity to eat a lot of bugs. I've had, um, like the, the little like gusanos, mm -hmm. um, I've had ants, I've had, uh, chapulines, obviously. Mm. Um, the, okay. So I do have one limitation. I won't, do spiders i hate spiders mm. i'm terrified of spiders and so I, i've seen you know people people who know that i hate spiders send me videos of spiders all the time because they're <laughs> you know jerks Dicks. and um there was one probably one of the most horrifying videos i've ever seen on youtube that uh my friend cesar Valdivia, who's who's going to be on the show later um Ooh. sent me and it was you know this big vat of you know fry oil and i was like oh it's a cooking video but since he sent it to me i knew there was something sinister behind it and uh, they were like frying tarantulas like battered whoa. tarantulas it was the most disgusting thing i've ever seen in my life I, like i wanted to throw up like on the spot that's just it's I would on YouTube. never it's on youtube i would say that i would try to find it but i'm not about to put tarantula into uh, YouTube. i'll find it i'll find it okay because that sounds like <laughs> a trip to me yeah that's you know what disgusting. i've never been confronted with i mean i don't have a problem with spiders i used to have a tarantula um, I like, I just, I, yeah, I have like, I, I don't, the only ones I don't like are, you know, black widows, but, um, but I've never been confronted with eating a spider. Like, I don't know what I would do because I've eaten grubs before. I have eaten crickets, like salt, salt and vinegar crickets. Um, uh, crickets are good, bro. Yeah. I mean, and like, as far as I'm, dude, I'm totally down to eat crickets. If people, cause people, you know, like, uh, the meat packing industry is just a, you know, I mean, I, even though I do eat meat, like I, I know how terrible the meat packing industry is. Um, and, and just how terrible the, uh, you know, for the environment, like, um, you know, uh, 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 farms are in terms of like just uh, cow factories, you know what I mean? But I'd be totally down to eat crickets, man. Like they got protein, like they take up less space. I'm sure they're probably, um, you know, not as bad for the environment. I'm sure they aren't. Yeah, so, I, th I feel like the, you know, the UN has been trying to get like, Americans to eat bugs for ever because mm -hmm. there's there's so many bugs they're everywhere mm -hmm. they are you know they are packed full of protein they're they're great for you just if we could get past that kind of cultural stigma of it's a bug yeah we could uh, we could eat more of them but yeah I'm I mean I'm definitely down to to eat bugs <laughs> <laughs> yeah me um, too. yeah dude I saw a um, there was a trend going around i don't know if it was last year or year before that um but it was like a super weird version of the paleo diet hmm. where where people and I, I it didn't last very long because it's completely insane and probably a bunch of people got sick but there was there's this group of people saying like that the human body it responds best to cooked vegetables and then raw meat but everything like these people were eating like raw chicken Raw, oh, like ground beef. It, dude, the pictures on Instagram are what? horrifying. Yes, these people are crazy. What is it called? 
Um, it's like raw paleo. If you look at raw paleo, that's so gnarly. There was um the the one that I saw first. It was um, it was this chick, and she had like a food blog or whatever, and she posted this picture. It's like salad greens, and then these like pink, you know, things in it. And she's like, I just love my raw chicken meatballs, and I was like, Ugh, how yes. raw? Chi- oh, dude, I'm looking at it right now. Oh, dude, that's disgusting. Oh, my God. They have, like, it's just raw meat and, like, an egg yolk. What the fuck, dude? I mean, like, I get, like, obviously, like, pokey and stuff like that. But, I mean, raw, like, red meat and chicken? Like, hell no. Dude, and, like, I and I've done, like, tartare. Like, I've done the, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah. But it's got to be, I'm not eating raw beef unless it's like a5 like wait like if i don't know where it came from if it's not from like a local farm gabe show me a picture right now that's disgusting is, yeah. is that hearts is that organ meats? yeah it's it's uh it just says slap of meat and liver Ugh. and these people you know some of the people like they're just getting it from like a you know obviously like a nicer but still like a supermarket and i'm like you can't yeah. you cannot just go buy ground beef from from the supermarket and consume it raw like it's super dangerous this and this chick's from the netherlands and her bio says for your ex-vegan oh i know exactly who you're talking about she i think has <laughs> has the most posts about it um, yeah i think it's pretty yeah, it's dude pretty i went all the way to the bottom of her feed and she has a picture of um it's like a piece of raw meat and then a glass of what I thought was wine, but turned out to be blood. And she's like, no! she's like breakfast. And I was like, I'm done with the what internet is, for today. What the? That's, oh, dude, I, I found it. I found it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. People are weird. She hasn't, I mean, she hasn't posted since what? 2018, so she might be dead. <laughs> I mean, that's terrible. I'm laughing. Um, <laughs> it's funny because I always say that too, like, in terms of, you know, how hungry I am and how I'm not afraid to eat anything. You know, I always think about um, who I'm going to eat if I'm in an elevator for too long. So oh, my God. Like, okay, this elevator is taking too long. Like, mm, that person looks, like, tasty. Uh, was, I was into, like, anthropology. Before I went to criminology, I was into anthro. And, like, I remember following this this one doctor that was, you know, he'd go on, on a location with a tribe. He was living, I think it was a Peruvian tribe. But he ate human, dude. No um, way. Yeah, it was cannibalism. And the only reason why he did it was because he said he was marching around. They're like generally hunter-gatherers. And they're marching around the jungle one day. And they came in contact with a, a, another tribe. And they started warring. And they ended up killing one of the guys. And that's part of their ritual is they take the, the body back. And then everybody cooks up the body. And they that part of the tribe eats it. And if he didn't eat any of it, they would have like killed him. So he had to like have some. Um and it, but it like affected him for the rest of his life for sure. Like he's he's like he's like has you know he's been totally traumatized by it 100. percent And uh, but I'm like yeah, they call it long pig. I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, cannibalism. How did how did yeah. we get here? <laughs> <laughs> right. So we're on cannibalism now. Wow, that's so funny. Uh, Shit happens. It, it does happen. It seems like a, a great place to end, actually, uh, <laughs> <laughs> podcast. Um, yeah, we actually, we are we are out of time for today. I say that like there's a set time for this show. I run the show so we can make it go as long as we want. But we're right at about an hour here, so I figure we'll go ahead and uh, 
and say goodbye to everybody today. But um, Gabe, if if people want to keep up with what you're doing, where can they where can they follow you? Where can they see what what's going on with you? Um, you can just go. Well, my website is gaberosales.com. G A B E R O S A L E S dot com. Um, I mean, and I have a connection to my email there too, I think. So you can just email me at gabe at gaberzalis.com. And then I have, you know, uh, Instagram. I have everything. I mean, you can be my top eight on MySpace if you want. Uh, uh, no, well, but the, it's kind of hard to find me on Instagram. Um, it's under D Manifester. Um, and that came from. You know, I was inspired when I was creating... Oh, I did a Native American documentary from 2011 to 2014, traveled all over the place and documented the plight of Native Americans with uh, with metal bands. And uh, that was fun. But, um, you know, Manifest Destiny, that whole concept, we were talking about demanifesting it. So you can find me at uh, the handle at demanifestor, D-E-M-A-N-I-F-E-S-T-O-R. And then, um, and then my, you just look at my name on Facebook, and it'll all pop up. Awesome. And I'll I'll put all that in the uh, in the show notes so people can uh, find it if they're listening on iTunes and the like. Orale. I like that you said your your last name with like a super white accent to make sure that people <laughs> could hear it. Right. Gabe Rosales. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the people who are listening to this are probably Hispanic, so you can you can go full okay. full Mexican. Gabriel Rosales. There we go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Sounds like my dad. My dad was Gabriel, Gabriel. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Dude, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, I, I always love seeing what you're doing, seeing the things that, that's going on with you. So, um, guys, make sure you, you follow him on Facebook, on Instagram. And, um, yeah, Gabe, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, brother. Dude, thank you so much for having me, man. I had a blast. Awesome. We'll see you next time. Appreciate to relate to everyone who just tried. Not a victim, though at times I emphasize.